During our season of Lent, we have been looking at all the ways into joy, each week promoting a specific spiritual discipline that might help get us into that place of enjoyment in life. This week, our discipline is the way into self-worth or in more modern vernacular, self-esteem. It also coincides perfectly with our double-dipping baptism this morning, as well as our ordination and installation of our church officers. The truth about self-worth is that we either have too much of it or not enough. Too much and we become proud and haughty, entitled and boastful, and self-righteous, too little, and we become a victim, neurotic, pitiful, needy, shamed, and guilt-ridden. This morning's passage from Ephesians points us to the two places where we can discover an appropriate level of our good worthiness and our spiritual maturity is brought into health through it. Reading from Ephesians 3:14 through 4:6, may God open up to us an understanding of this word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who, by the power at work within us, is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, therefore I... Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. It was almost 20 years ago, as I remember, when I witnessed a major social sea change in culture when I was coaching my daughter's soccer teams. At the end of the season, we got together for the banquet, and they called everyone's name, and they came up, and each was given a trophy. 
I was surprised by that. Certainly, the trophy business was in support of this new way of teaching children self-esteem, as were the child psychologists who were saying that each of us must be affirmed in our being and that sometimes it's unfair to award those who have been born with greater gifts than others unfairly. A name developed, in fact, called the Trophy Generation. The Washington Post had a headline about this in the August paper of last year that read 65% of Americans say millennials are entitled and 58% of millennials agree. I'm not sure if they agree with the finding or they agree that they should be entitled. And I guess what they mean by that is that this millennial generation seems to have a sense of being entitled to all the goodies by virtue of being born into the right family, or the right color of their skin, or the right orientation, or the right academic achievement, or the right sports ability. I guess what they mean by that is that those who didn't have the opportunity to choose their parents as well as others are not quite as entitled as those who did. We often hear about those who are on welfare and are entitled, but according to sociologists, our wealthy children are putting them to shame. This is why it's important and vital that our kids in church, this church, who have an incredible benefit and gift of having so much, why it's so vital for them to go on mission trips to the Appalachian Service Project or to Haiti to remind them that, you know what, in fact, everybody doesn't live this way. And that what we have been given is extraordinary compared to most of the world. And we are not necessarily entitled to it by virtue of our being born into it. As Christians, we value the sacrament of baptism because it tells us just this. Each of us, Jew or Gentile, male or free, slave or free, male or female, each of us, a child of God. In the kingdom of God, this sacrament of baptism levels the playing field and reminds us that each of us really gets a trophy as far as God's love is concerned. It is the great equalizer in God's kingdom. However, we must understand clearly that this does not mean that we have a sense of entitlement now that we are baptized as children of God. In fact, it means the exact opposite. Baptism begins our high calling of selfless service and giving back to the larger community of the church and especially to the world as part of our own growing up in faith and maturity. These two things, 
our identity as a child of God given to us by virtue of our birth as a child of God and our response to that, our responsibility to that, to give back what we have been given, for to whom much is given, much is required. Those two things, you see, form the foundation upon which our true self-worth is found. Now, I'm aware that this sounds like a typical old geezer comment about how easy our folks Our young folks today have it. When I was growing up in the South, the standard for your self-worth was your ability on the field of sport for a male. At every pickup game, it was determined your self-worth by where you were chosen in that game. Those first chosen were worth way more than those chosen at the end who, in fact, were only sort of resignedly chosen as an afterthought. Oh, well, somebody's got to take them. I guess we will. And as we lived out that competitive, athletic sense of macho, mano, imano, worth stuff, it became inherent in our sense of who we were. And those who didn't do as well on the playing field were able to find other places, hopefully, where they found a different sense of worth, maybe in art or music or in academics. This is natural for men, really. And it is the product of millions of years of genetic wheeling and dealing because, you see, we, through the process of the survival of the fittest, have been taught that your worth is directly related to how much you produce. And production simply means what you bring in to feed the family and how you can dominate all the other threats in the world out there. Your strength and your production determines your self-worth. Now, through athletics or through business or through winning cases, It's the same. Our testosterone as men continues to propel us in this direction. And ironically, the more we become dominant, the more it shows that our testosterone increases. So it's sort of a strange loop. Hopefully we can rise above our bestial instincts, the lowest level on Maslow's needs hierarchy, For as corporations and institutions are learning and promoting women and non-extroverted men, the best thing for the organization may not necessarily be the best thing for the baboon troop. For women, it's not so much production as it is reproduction, historically, through time. And this is also a biblical warrant, unfortunately. Even the Bible supports the fact that women who are able to produce are more blessed than those who are not. How many children can you have? How many children can you raise and nurture and bring up? That's what determines a woman's self-worth throughout history. Thank goodness we are starting to change. We're starting to move past our Neanderthal drives to see that our self-worth is 
not about how many babies we can drop or how much bacon we can bring home. Let's just say we get beyond that DNA, genetic survival of the fittest thing in us, then move to the next level, and we start grading ourselves differently than production or reproduction. And usually what we do as normal folk is we grade ourselves according to how popular we are. We turn to others to be uh, in need to be admired and adored and respected and liked by all these other people, either on Facebook or Instagram. One of you was telling me that uh, young women today, if they do not get a hundred likes on an Instagram picture, they immediately delete it because they will then face the shame of not measuring up. Anthony DeMello, a psychiatrist, observed, look at your life and see how you have filled its emptiness with people. See how they control your behavior by their approval. They hold the power to ease your loneliness with their company, send your spirits soaring with their praise, or bring you down to the depths with their criticism. Take a look at yourself, spending almost every waking moment pleasing other people, whether living or dead. You live by their norms, conform to their standards, seek their company, desire their love, dread their ridicule, long for their applause, meekly submit to the guilt they lay on you. It is true that we are deeply dependent on other people to understand ourselves. We must have mirrored back to us ourselves through the eyes and faces of those who love us and care for us. That's how we come to know who we are, through the faces and love of other people. But that is not the ultimate and most profoundly deep place that we come to know who we are. And this is the truth that this morning's text gives us. While people may contribute to our sense of self-worth, they will not ultimately fill the deepest need that each of us has, as we said at the baptism, for our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. This is the word to us, newly ordained and installed officers, as it is to each and every single member in our church. The writer to Ephesians says, I pray, I get down on my knees and pray that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you have the power to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. We all wonder how to prove God's existence. We turn to the Bible and are, and are reminded that that holy text 
is a witness to the presence of God, but it is not a proof of the presence of God. We turn to the church and the tradition that has been handed down, and we see that 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 church is full of the people of God's presence and God's body, yet that church is also full of humans and does not prove the presence of God. We turn to our reason and rational uh, ability to, to search thoughtfully, and we can actually think in terms of maybe there is a God. But the real proof of the presence of God is this. Does that presence of God in our lives change us and make a difference in the way we understand ourselves and our relationship with God and ourselves and our relationship with each other. If that changes us, that's all the proof we need. This is exactly what the writer in Ephesians is trying to give those people who are struggling with this very issue. It is, it is a presence that fills us up at the very place we are most hungry and most desperate to be loved. And when we can see ourselves receiving this incredible love of God in Jesus Christ and comprehend the fullness of it, the breadth and height and length and width, the issues of our self-esteem are no longer important. Friends, this is just half of it. This is the trophy given to us for just showing up. We are by virtue of our birth given this birthright of God's incredible love in Jesus Christ. The second half is this. We have to do something in response. We have to take what has been given to us and to use it to the fullness of the gift. To whom much is given, we are told, much is required. It was said that a true, the true worth of a person is measured by the worth of the objects that he or she pursues. If that is true, then the object we are called to pursue is the unconditional love of God that has been given to us. And in that receiving of that love, we then pursue that love in our love of our neighbor, love of God with heart, mind, and soul, and love of neighbor as ourselves. That is what determines our worth as human beings. When we do not, when we choose to live less than that, our self-worth falters. Studies show that joy and happiness is found in working toward a goal for the common good. Really more than achieving the goal, it is in the imagining and preparation and working toward it that we find our most joy. And the goal, of course, is unconditional love of God and neighbor. The writer begs the people of the church of Ephesus to lead a life worthy of the calling to which they have been called in humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. They are called to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And it seems to me, at least, 
that we do this together as the body of Christ. That when we pursue this love of others, even though we do not agree with them, we do nevertheless commit to them because God has committed to us. This is the plea and the begging that we hear from Paul to the church at Ephesus, that we are all in one spirit even though we are not all in one agreement. This is where self-worth is found, by the way, in our relationships with each other when we give ourselves up for the sake of the other because God has given himself up for our sakes. I now call before us the ordination and installation of our new officers.